Hello and welcome to another episode of our podcast. I have two esteemed guests with me today, Barry and Iria. Both of them have last names. Guys, can you just introduce yourself, please? Okay, I'm Barry Haddo, and I'm head of NLP with Aveni. My other position is I'm a senior researcher at the University of Edinburgh. I have worked on natural language processing for the whole time I've been there. I specialize mainly in machine translation. Recently, I've been more interested in uh, other NLP tasks like summarization, for instance, automatic minuting, processing of speech, and so on. I'm basically with Aveni. My role is to sort of try to co- connect Aveni with what's happening in the in the world of research um, through my connections in the University of Edinburgh. I'm Iria del Rio. I'm lead NLP engineer at Aveni. I lead a team of five engineers, and we all work using natural language processing and uh, machine learning to implement solutions to solve hopefully, the problems of our clients in the area of uh, financial services. Before working at Aveni, I worked both in industry and also in academia and research, uh, working on natural language processing, mainly working with with text, uh, different problems like machine translation or grammatical error detection and correction or implementing tools for um, people learning second languages. So we're here today to talk about a fascinating topic called emergence i think you know the last six months have been a pretty crazy time in nlp uh, generative ai large language models just seeing the pace of progress and the capabilities that seem to have emerged from large language models as they've been trained on larger and larger data sets some expected some very much a surprise And so I think this is one of these crossover topics that you don't have to be a scientist or an engineer or work in natural language processing to really get excited and interested in this. So I cannot wait to get into this. Let's start, Iria, with you. Emergence, what exactly are we talking about? Well, the concept of emergence is applied in different um, areas in science and psychology and different different areas of study. But uh, in general, the idea is that a system, a complex system that has different parts, suddenly starts showing behaviors that uh, it didn't show before. And that can't be explained by the individual behaviors of all these parts, all its parts. These behaviors appear suddenly and can be predicted again, by the different parts that compound that complex system. And it has been applied also, also to machine learning, and in this case, to large language models, to, to explain theoretically behaviors, capabilities of those models that have, haven't been seen before in smaller versions of the same model. So same model with the same type of training, uh, theoretically, suddenly shows a type of behavior, uh, shows capabilities that uh, haven't seen before. Uh, it's very interesting because uh, Barry uh, shared a, a paper uh, that actually challenges the concept itself. It's very interesting because it kind of explains that maybe it's not real, that perspective that the, the, these behaviors are emerging suddenly. It's more like there is real, uh, really an improvement 
but uh, you can't see the improvement because of the metrics you're using. Yeah, I find the, the idea of emergence a little bit of a slippery concept. I mean, it is essentially what Iria says, you know, the idea of a system being, you know, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts or that you've got in the area of large language models, a group of researchers tried to pin this down and essentially said that you've got some, you, you make a quantitative change to the model. So essentially you increase the model size, the amount of data it uses, and then you get some qualitative change in behavior. And an example of this is its ability to do arithmetic. So if you take a large language model, ChatGPT or some other model, you know, it's not trained to do arithmetic. We don't expect it to be able to do arithmetic, um, but it can actually make a decent job of, you know, for example, adding three digit numbers. Um, and they studied tasks like this in, in, in a lot more detail. So they look at the performance as you increase the model size and you take, say you take a hundred examples of arithmetic and you ask the model to perform them. And if you find that small models are basically the performance is zero or it's essentially random um, and you keep scaling up the model and suddenly, the, suddenly they start performing. Um, so you get this kind of hockey stick graph. Some other researchers took issue with this and said, well, it's just, it's not initially emergence in the sense of a behavior that appears very suddenly. If you look at it in the right lens, you can see a sort of smooth transition. So if you measure, instead of measuring the, the model's ability to do a complex task, you measure it in sort of how does it step towards this task? And you can actually see, so for something like arithmetic, all the elements have to be in place and you get the right answer. If you make one little mistake, you get the wrong answer. But if you plot some other metric which measures the sort of a more refined accuracy on, on a task, like is it able to predict the next word correctly, you can see more of a smooth transition. I think, I think what's, what's interesting here is we've scaled up these models and they're doing cool stuff. They're doing things that couldn't be done before. Um, whether that fits under this definition of emergence is something that's still under debate. That sounds like nitpicking. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, at the end of the day, I mean, yeah. just taking a non-researcher's view here, okay. who cares? Like at the end of the day, the, the task is defined by the model's ability to do the task, to complete the task whether it's behind the scenes slowly building toward that capability or whether it's all of a sudden emerging out of the blue, when you increase the number of data points the model's trained on, new capabilities are emerging. I think that, that research and, and, and the way that was just described there, to me, sounds, sounds like a really good way of potentially measuring and predicting what's going to emerge and when. But I think the concept still remains the same, right? It might be an academic argument. It is about the framing of this. If you call it emergence, you're implying something kind of unpredictable. So you just said yeah. we could predict this performance. To be some emergence, you're implying something unpredictable. And it makes it sound sort of a bit like magic. The point is that it's not really magic. In one sense, you're absolutely right. So the first group of researchers, the ones that that's called the emergence proponents, came back and said, you want to measure the model on the tasks that you care about. If, if you care about doing arithmetic, that's what you should be me measuring the model on anyway. If you have uh, an expected answer for a certain task and it has to have five words and the wrong answer has right four out of those five, but one of those words is actually the keyword and then the answer is wrong. Well, 
it, it doesn't matter. What you want is that the answer is correct, right? So I think that for me, at least when I was reading this, this paper, what is interesting is the aspect of predictability, right? Uh, using this type of um, perspective to see, okay, we can predict when the model is going to be able to, to show certain behavior. It's not, as you said, Barry, something magic that appears. We have a way to maybe predict when something's going to happen if we measure it differently. But it's true that that behavior of it's correct or is incorrect doesn't appear before. I think this is overarching concept here whether predictable or not and that is capabilities materially improve with the number of data points that models are trained on with size and i think there's a sort of question in in the back of people's minds in fact there's a question in the front of a lot of people's minds especially when you read press on 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 the existential risk of, of AI. And the question is, where does it stop? Notwithstanding the question around predictability and the definition of uh, emergence, it's probably not unreasonable to think that capabilities will emerge if we carry on that are completely unpredictable. So what, what happens next with, with this? Do you think we're going to continue you know, adding hundreds and hundreds of billions, maybe trillions of different parameters and and, and data points and well, where does this stop? I think that's a really good question. Essentially, we don't know. So it's just speculation. How many orders of magnitude can we increase the model size? I would say probably not that many more, although they've increased by maybe two to three in the last couple of years. Where would um, you say we are now? Like, you know, you've got GPT-4, yeah, uh, which is probably the maybe the biggest it's probably not the biggest, although we don't really know. We may be at the stage where just scaling isn't actually going to get the improvements we want. We're at the stage where, okay, we've got these really large-scale models. We actually don't really know what, what all they can do. We're just finding that out. I mean, it was only about relatively recently, maybe two to three years ago, that people discovered that prompting models was actually a thing. And now prompts are everywhere. These are things we sort of find out over time. There's still a lot of questions about how to control language models, how to make them do the things that we'd really like them to do. They seem to be able to very capable, but how do you actually get them to solve the real problems that we're actually keen on solving? Would you guys have signed, signed the letter? The quite infamous letter now. Um, <laughs> No, I've got. I can tell you my. I can tell you my view on on that. Uh -huh. I think everyone everyone knows what the the letter is. <laughs> now, this twenty two word letter. <laughs> stop, stop, like just stop, basically oh. for six for six months at least. And, and oh, and that letter. Sorry, that oh, letter. You're, yeah, you're yeah. well behind, Joseph. There's a new there are two out. letters. Yeah, there are two. Oh, letters the letter to that today. Well, there's yeah, three letters this week. Ah, well, it's probably three letters. Yeah. I only know about two guys. <laughs> yeah, I'm one letter behind. <laughs> I've just penned penned one. Yeah. So what what what's your what's your view on that? Because I think that really does get to the heart of of what we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, and before you give your view, I can give you my view. I know I asked you the question and then I'm answering it, but that's the way I roll. So my personal view, from a selfish business perspective, is sign all the letters like i i don't think from what we've seen so far much more needs to happen in terms of the size of foundational models for the huge impact that um 
uh, they're going to have on on industry this productivity revolution that's talked about i don't think we need more i don't think we need bigger models so what seems to have been happening recently is senior figures in the ai world both in the academic world but mainly in the commercial world have been saying look guys we've created something that's okay it's fantastic but it's potentially dangerous and maybe we should have a pause and maybe we need some regulation i think even this week there was the the 22 word statement which was signed by jeff hinton perhaps the leading researcher in the ai world yoshio bengio and various uh, very senior people in um, places like Google and OpenAI and so on. There's been a kind of mixture of reactions to this. There's been some incredible pushback. There's been pushback from people like Jan LeCun, who is the, I think, chief scientist at Meta, who's basically saying, well, this is just, this is just overhyping. There's lots of problems to be solved. We're not, we're not at nearly any human intelligence yet. We shouldn't, you know, this is just, they're calling them the AI doomers. And then there's been this sort of AI ethics community were saying, well, why didn't ask did you develop this stuff? And the minute you've developed it, you say, oh, we have to stop developing because it's too dangerous. What on earth have you been doing? And their kind of concern, which I would echo, is that we, we've got a problem that these LLMs, we've got a danger where the power is sort of, or at least the, the LLMs are concentrated. A small number of organizations actually own these LLMs and know about them. and know what to do with them and that isn't necessarily a good situation because these organizations are not accountable these are private companies and should we let them decide how we should regulate this or how we should control this i'm not really sure going back to joseph's point you know as a company that's developing products that wants to use this llms in a way we're almost we, we can say yes let's just get us get on and develop some products and we can we can do a lot of really cool stuff with these llms at the moment we're not sure if we need the technology developed any further we don't appear to need more scale we would like to spend some time figuring out what to do with it as as an academic i'd be like hey that'd be quite good if you could just stop doing all this and we could just actually just figure out what's going on here which is another angle um and that's not going to happen for that reason do you not see a particular irony with the founding of OpenAI. Listen to this, right? I'm just 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 brought this up now. OpenAI was founded in 2015 in San Francisco by Elon Musk, Sam Altman, Greg Brockman, and others. The company's mission is to develop a safe and open AI, uh, AI tools to empower people. OpenAI was created to further the, ad the advancement of AI research in a safe and transparent manner. It feels to me that OpenAI started on this righteous path of creating AI tools for everyone, being completely open and transparent. And at the first sniff that they'd created something they could make loads of money from, they said, bugger that. We're going <laughs> to... We're going to get really rich here. Uh, it, it, it effectively not being transparent not being open or at least not open enough from a research perspective what what i don't know what what your thoughts on 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 that uh, area i find ironic that one of the of the persons who signed that statement as barry was uh, calling it uh is is one of the open ai um most important scientists you know like you create something and then you say oh we should stop it it's like, why? Because yours is already in the market. And now you say we should stop it. It's kind of like ironic. And, and in the same context of what you just mentioned, Joseph, that 
in principle, yeah, it was going to be everything open until it reaches to me. It, it, it sounds like freemium, you know, like this freemium approach, like everything is free until I can get money from it. And then I make you pay for it. It feels like quite a lot of like legacy hedging going on where people are saying, putting the statement out there just in case it does kill humanity. And just before everyone dies, they can go, look, I, I signed a letter. But also, it also creates hype, right? If you say, hey, this technology I'm developing can destroy humanity, you know, and we have to control it, it also creates a lot of expectation around it, right? So how do you control it then? So there's, there's I thought, although, you know, we're taking a, a few jabs here at the people that create the models and sign the letters what they're saying in these letters is i believe is f fundamentally right you know things probably moved a bit quicker than anyone was expecting the pause sounds like a good idea additional regulation sounds like a good idea a global committee trying to put this you know on the same pedestal as nuclear armament in terms of uh, risks to humanity you know let's raise the game let's get every everyone talking about it at a, a national level all all these things sound like good ideas but then precedent suggests that when the genie is out of the bowl humanity will just crack on someone somewhere won't stop and so how do you control this like what what are the systems of control it feels like the technical barriers to entry here in terms of training these models is not actually that high. The technical barriers are not that high, I would say. I mean, you are talking several several millions of pounds worth of compute, um, researcher time. I mean, it, at a national a level, though. At, at a, a national, national level, level. Yes, it exactly, is. yeah. yeah. It, it's the national, national governments and so on do have the resources. How do we control it? I guess the problem is I don't think we control it by saying to the people that developed it, right, you you write reg regulations and we'll implement them. I don't think that's the route to controlling it. As far as OpenAI is concerned, they've never really been open and they're even less open now. They've never really been transparent about what they were doing. And that's most companies building products are not transparent about what they're doing, so that's awesome. okay. The fact that they put out in their mission that they were going to be transparent is a little bit perhaps even dishonest, but I mean, that's... Just change That's your name to closed, closed AI, no problem. But, but it, there is a genuine problem of like, is there a risk here? There are definitely risks. How do we control it? I think by being closed about it is probably not the way to control it. I think it would be useful to really know, to have these things, these tools, these LLMs out there so people can look at them, can prod them around and figure out what they can and can't do. There's a lot of sort of people out there going, hmm, let's look at GPT and try and figure out what, what went into it. It would be quite good if we just knew what went into it. Even that, that doesn't make it easy to study, I should emphasize, because there's a big distance between the input and the output. It does improve things, and the certain things can be explained if we know what went into it. Yeah, I mean, in terms of uh, systems that can produce text that looks as though it came from a human or could chat away and look like a human, there's kind of a clear risk of deception, of producing lots of toxic content. I mean, imagine like... You want to do some kind of investment fraud or something like that, and you, you're able to generate all the text you need using something like, like GPT. Do you think that's that's what why the letters are being signed though? Probably not, but those are the kind of those are sort of the more immediate risks that we have, you know, because you can do that today. You know, I mean, investment fraud and these financial fraud 
has always been a problem. I mean, and always will be a problem because there's incentives for it. Now there's new tools. We've got to catch up and we can, you can generate much more convincing documents, much more convincing fraud using these new tools. The big worry for me in terms of the systems of control, almost by any precedent for any risk that's tried to be controlled at either a, a national or international level, the time taken to create these effective systems of governance is so long. If anyone with their finger on the pulse looks at this last six months of activity, it really feels like by the time effective systems of control are implemented, things will have just moved so far beyond those systems of control. So how do, how do you keep up with this? It's quite discouraging, to be honest, because I don't know for how long the EU has been working on this new uh, framework for regulating um, AI. Uh, do you know, Barry, for how long? I don't know, but it's been for several years, I think. You know, still not there. And in the meantime, this this all has happened the last six months, and it's already what they what they we they've been working on. It's already like in the past, you know. So uh, I understand that. It takes time, but what I don't understand is why it takes so long, you know, how how many interests are involved into, into this type of, of things, you know, like it could be interesting uh, to take a look to regulations in other areas like research in genetics and, and manipulation of, you know, genes and things like that it poses like lots of risks for, for, for humanity, I think, and for the um, rights of people. It's concerning that regulation takes so long and... And I don't have a lot of hope around that. Barry touched a really interesting and crucial point that is understanding, is understanding how these things work, is understanding you can't control them if you can't understand what to do with them, right? If you have a completely, complete black box and you don't know anything about it, it's, it's very difficult to, to control it and to, to even regulate it, I would say. And that sort of makes me think about your original point about the the research paper on the measurement of emergent capabilities and and how we may be measuring the wrong things and the different ways to to look into these sort of black boxes and and measure the the pace of evolution and how capabilities are evolving. It it really feels that you need that on steroids to effectively control this to know where to draw the lines. Is it like no model should be built over X number of data points? There was um, something I read a little while back, some throwaway statement that said, you know, they said AI would be safe if we don't connect it openly to the internet. And it'll be okay if we don't just put it in the hands of the general public. And it was like this long list of things not to do that between OpenAI and Microsoft in the last six months, they've done them all. And so you start to wonder, where do you draw these lines? You know, you talk about regulation, but where do they look? What do you look at? You said, how can they regulate? Can they can they um, stop, stop people from building a model over a certain size? To me, that just seems completely unenforceable and unpractical. You know, if you think of things that might cause a danger to humanity, okay, so there's regulations around guns, but that's quite clear what a gun is and what it can do and so on. Regulation around AI, I have trouble seeing how that could be done. But also you mentioned, well, okay, so the problem is when you connect it to something else. So a large language model itself can't really do anything. It can just generate text. That in itself isn't particularly dangerous. It just what then happens to that text? Okay, so we've touched on... It can do impersonation, fraud, deception, that sort of thing. That's not 
existentially dangerous to humanity, that's a major problem and perhaps lead to new types of crime, but it's not existential. What about when you connect it to something else, when you connect it to some kind of weapon system, which can actually kill people? That's I'm less clear about. It's something we need to think about, I suppose. I don't see that happening at the moment, but there was this long list of things you shouldn't do with AI, and we're doing them. And also, I guess that as somebody trying to regulate it, this, you have to look to the future, not only what what can you do now, right? If you look at yeah. what were you able to do five years ago and what can you do now, the, the, the jump is quite big. So I guess that as a regulator, you have to talk with the experts and the experts have to, you know, explain <laughs> what they have done and how they have done things and, you know, talk about, okay, these are possibilities and what can we do now about it or start thinking about it now? Because if you start thinking about it when it's a reality, you're again too late. Things like, okay, connecting AI to some kind of weaponry or a car, for instance, we do regulate these things already. You know, I mean, we don't have self-driving cars on the roads for a good reason. You know, AI-assisted weaponry obviously exists, but it's heavily controlled. The AI itself is just providing the automation around this. For me, there are two tracks. All the stuff that we do currently, all the bad stuff we do currently, whether it's fraud, misinformation, you know, these types of things probably just got a whole lot easier. And that's one track. And that's for me all about national regulation, industry regulation, protecting consumers, educating individuals. If you think that chat GPT is going to make Twitter a whole lot worse, you probably don't use Twitter. <laughs> I mean, it's already the trough of the internet. You know, maybe it'll just do everyone a favor and people won't use Twitter anymore. There's a whole raft of risks in that bucket that just got a whole lot easier to execute. You know, if I was a dictator of a country right now, I'd be like, yes, you know, I've just gotten, you know, a big boost to my toolkit. That stuff's out there and, you know, that has to fall into national regulation. I personally, in my interpretation, of the big risks, the existential risk. The question really is what capabilities need to emerge for GPT-4 or whatever to become Skynet, to be able to self-improve to a point that we can't control it or whatever it is. And that's the, that's the risk that is making headlines to me. I mean, what I'm wondering is, does that risk come about from the AI model itself? Or does it only come about when you connect the AI model to other systems? It, to it doesn't world? matter. The, I think the assumption and the worry is the foundation or the missing link to make something like that happen will be these type of models rather than necessarily what they're connected to. So I don't know how close we are to something like that, to be honest. That to me doesn't feel like we are very close to to you know a model being sentient and self-aware and things like, you know, howling. 2000, like one Odyssey, I don't want to be, you know, disconnected and things like that. I, I, I think we are quite far away from that, but, you know, last famous words. Uh, this is my understanding of, of, of the situation. I think everyone in your type of position would have given that answer 18 months ago. Like we're miles away. Don't worry about it. So many things have to be developed. And then now people are thinking in a slightly different way. It's like, well, actually the pace at which capabilities have emerged is a little bit concerning. 
it goes back to the analogy that if you're trying to get to the moon, are we climbing a tree or building a rocket ship? I, I suppose why I get stuck with this is, you know, we, we have leading lights in the field telling us there's a danger, but none of them can articulate what this danger is. And there was the, the anecdote about Jeff Hinton, and apparently his sort of road to Damascus moment was when he made up a joke and the AI system, the large language model, was able to explain this joke to him. I mean, that seems like a really surprising sort of wow moment. I don't really get the jump from the logical jump from that to existential threat to humanity. But also, you, you can kind of look at that and say, well, actually, if you feed in jokes to AI, and there's actually a website, which I forget the URL just now, but you can feed in jokes and, and get it to explain them. Half the time it gets them wrong. So it's a bit random. And also, there are one sort of more mundane explanation. I don't know if this is the true explanation, but a more mundane explanation. There are websites dedicated to collecting explanations of jokes. OpenAI have crawled these websites. They're crawling every website. So GPT has absorbed the explanations of millions of jokes. The fact that it's able to synthesize an explanation for a new joke from that, it's maybe not a massive surprise. Well, so what is the road to Damascus moment there then? I mean, is is that I'm thinking the the, the gap yeah. the gap to human level intelligence is not as big or as complicated as we thought it was because actually you can do human things with pretty basic inputs like joke explanations from a website and and you can appear and feel and act pretend to be human uh, and that mm. in itself is a huge risk. I mean, maybe that is the jump that it it can. You can find an explanation for why it's understanding jokes. The fact that it can actually do this, if you just look at this as a phenomenon, this is actually really surprising and makes it look very human-like, even if you can spend a few weeks digging into this and discover there's a reasonable explanation to how it got there. But the appearance is very human-like, and that means it can do that in other ways. And that's obviously a problem, because as I say, there's the deception problem and the fact that these the output of these models can look very human. It's, it's kind of like a new gun, if you want. Like it's a new tool that can be used for for bad things, but the tool itself is not gonna destroy your house. Also, I, I have a challenging challenging idea here. Why every time we think on a superior form of intelligence, we think it's gonna destroy us? Yeah, I mean, he, I, there's, I there's so many examples of superior forms of intelligence destroying everything. <laughs> like. <laughs> not like humans and standing on ants or washing a wood lice down the bathtub um because you you know you, you don't want a bath with, with the wood lice you've got nothing against wood lice you've just got a completely different incentive structure if it's created by humans it'll definitely kill us almost in the definition of risk management the fact that it could or it might means it needs managing we could or we might i think for me is the thing it's like what are we going to use that thing for i think that's the first that's even the, the very very obvious risk and that we don't have to wait five years and we don't have to wait 10 years you know we were already discussing of, of risks that are happening like i have a, a friend close friend who works on fake news and trying to educate people to you know differentiate <laughs> fake news from real content things like that and and we were discussing about how difficult 
things are getting, you know, every day with these new models that create images, for example, we're mentioning, we are talking about text here, but also there are models that create images, for example, in video. And it's really, really hard to, to distinguish real image from an image that has been created by one of these models. And that's very powerful. If you can't distinguish anything between anything that's real or fake, it's face-to-face in books. Yeah, I mean, I think where I think we've ended up is, yes, we can see that the new generation of large language models have some very, perhaps surprising, exciting capabilities, maybe slightly worrying capabilities, and we need to proceed carefully. Whether that means that we need to have a pause in the development or whether that means that we need to say to the people who develop these tools, uh, we'll let you regulate them. I'm not convinced about that. Existential threat to humanity. I think there's other things in the world that are perhaps I would put as bigger priorities as existential threats. It sort of reminds me of something like, say, the invention of the print, printing press, where a lot of people probably thought that was an existential threat, um, and particularly the people who are actually in power at the time. And it's made a lot of changes, but we're still here. When you were talking there, I was thinking about, it wasn't that long ago, maybe in the 1950s, there was a BBC documentary about the failure of the Italian spaghetti harvest, which showed spaghetti hanging on trees um, and talked about the problems with the harvest. And people believe this. Now, we laugh about that today because it's like, nobody's <laughs> going to believe that. Um, but, you know, it, it's every, every generation probably is going to have their spaghetti harvest moment. Iria, what's your... Um... Uh, Jerry's final thought. If you look at the history of science and you know discoveries and things like that, if you if you find one where you know there was regulation around the area that was being discovered, I would be surprised. I think that hasn't happened. Many discoveries also have happened without much understanding of what was going on. You know, like people were trying out things, and they they go to discover something even when there was not a theory to explain it yet so i think that's gonna continue happening and especially if there are economic interests around it so i think th- that that's to say i think there's gonna the research in this area is gonna continue and and try to to do new cooler things is gonna continue that said i think it's crucial as barry said that there is thinking about it what it implies and what can we do even if we are late at least if we are late, we already have something in place maybe <laughs> to try to, you know, fight it or at least have an idea of what can we do next. But if we don't even think about it or discuss it and try to, you know, ignore it, that that's the danger. Look, thank you both so much for your precious time. I think my um, questions were exceptional. 100%. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I bow down to your exceptional questions, Joseph. Thank you very much. To maybe finish on a sort of glass half full moment, if you just think about the UK in particular, you know, we're suffering from quite a material, one of the worst productivity crises our national economy has ever had. Um, we've got dramatically underserved markets um, across almost all service sectors. You put those two things together and you think about the capability of these models, I think there's a huge opportunity. So if you can provide legal services via GPT to um, uh, typically sort of underserved uh, individuals that can't afford it or financial advice or whatever service it is, um, utilizing uh, GPT, 
um, you're solving two problems. You're solving productivity crises. You're solving you're solving the fact that uh, people can't get access to services. And I think when you think about the application of these models in that type of way, there's loads to be really positive about, at least in the short to medium term. Um, there's lots of really nice problems to solve um, across all aspects of the economy, all industries, and that's really exciting.